Imagine with me the start of an athletics race. The runners position themselves at the start line. They squat down, fixing their feet firmly into the starter blocks. Adrenaline is pumping through their veins. Every muscle warmed, finely tuned and flexed. Every sinew stretched, ears are straining, waiting for the sound of the starting pistol. Hours, days, years of preparation are behind them. They've pushed themselves in training beyond what they ever thought they could endure. They're at the peak of physical fitness, mental alertness, motivational focus. Everything has been building up for this day, this moment. Strict discipline, controlling their training, their rest, mental well-being, diet, nutrition, everything. But now the moment has come. It is time to run, time for action. We all face moments like that in every area of our lives. And there must come a moment, a moment for action in every endeavor. Time to apply for that course. Go on. Time to make that telephone call. Come on. Time to buy that house, invest. Time for that job interview. Time to tell your friend about Christ. There are so many good intentions we have over the years, but never follow through on them. I found that we can go for years meaning to do something, but never getting round to it. So I ask myself, what, what holds us back sometimes? and What gets us going? One of the main blockages is fear. Will it work? What response will I have? Will I be rejected? Will I cope if I get accepted? Do I really have what it takes? What about the risks? Then sometimes there's lack of focus with all of the distractions. There's so many demands. Sometimes I feel that all we can do is get through our daily routine. No time, no energy to innovate, to make changes, or to reach out and achieve something new. Then there is the comfort of the status quo. I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing, business as usual. It's right, though not to fear, the cost of being someone different, of doing something different, often out of the ordinary. And there is a price to pay. There's a famous fitness man in the United States of America by the name of Bill Phillips. He is a young man highly successful in the health and fitness industry. He's an expert in that. And he has made a fortune in this industry with his book, Body for Life, and his magazine and supplement products. And uh, he would travel around the United States of America holding seminars, promoting his books, materials, and his program. And he was highly popular. Crowds would come and many would line up afterwards to have him sign the book. And 
and they would often say things like, oh, thank you, Bill, You're, you've really helped me. I found all that you've said. I found this very, very helpful. And he would notice that very often the people who praised him most were those who look least like uh, the front cover of his book, if you know what I'm talking about. They had a spreading ministry. <laughs> and he, he wondered, how, how could the people who say they appreciate me most and appreciate what I've taught them without ever putting it into practice. So he thought about this and he called what they were facing the abyss, the infinite chasm between knowing and doing. And then he issued a challenge. He said, all right, um, decide to follow my program Send me three-month program. Send me a before and after photograph, and you could win a big prize. At times, he even offered a million dollars to the person who was the most impressive as an example of his program. Well, hundred at least hundred thousand people accepted the challenge and began to change. That shows you the value of motivation. Now, I am not going to promise you a million dollars if you do what I say today, but I am going to help you cross the abyss, cross the chasm between knowing and doing, between thinking about it and acting on it, between intending to achieve something and actually achieving it. As the Bible says, becoming doers of the word, not hearers only. Just a few points about motivation. Having a worthwhile goal that is enticing, that excites you, that promises a reward, but in line with purpose, the purpose of your life. Of course, it takes having faith, and I mean by that in the purest sense of believing God's word and acting on it. But also believing, because God says so, that you can do it. You can make it. And having a concrete plan that shows change happening over a period of time in very real and concrete ways, specific ways, steps towards your goal. And the most encouraging thing of all is doing it together. In our cell ministry, we focus on people sharing together, praying together, working together, doing it together and encouraging one another. Doing it out there on your own is tough. Doing it with support and doing it with a group of like-minded people makes it easier. Last Sunday, the 2.30 service, we had a commissioning service for Christian Live. And um, as an evangelist, I prepared a message. Uh, he was the evangelist, but we're all evangelists, you know. But I prepared a message, releasing the evangelist in you, the Holy Spirit. And uh, I got about eight minutes to preach it because Christian being a good evangelist, you know. And there was so much to say and so much celebration. But I did communicate that message briefly. And somebody in the congregation heard it, believed it, and in the kind of 
tea party afterwards downstairs, found somebody who did not yet know Christ, and won them to the Lord. And that person is going on today. And he said, you know what? I didn't think I could do it, but it happened. God was with me. It's exciting. It's wonderful. I now don't want to stop. There is nothing more exhilarating and wonderful than leading a soul to Jesus Christ. And after all, it is a Jesus thing to do. The story of Nicodemus, John's Gospel, chapter 3, is such a story that shows the, the love of Christ in reaching out and drawing somebody who did not yet have faith in him as Messiah, drawing him into the kingdom of God. Let's read the story. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter second time to his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless... One is born of water and spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But cannot tell where it comes from. And where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The way the Holy Spirit works in drawing people to Christ, washing them, giving them power and a new life is mysterious. But it's not so mysterious that God doesn't use us in the process. And that to me is the biggest mystery of all. That God could so equip us with the wisdom and the knowledge and the anointing that we can be used by the Holy Spirit as spiritual midwives to see new life, the life of the kingdom, the life of God, the life which comes from above, birthed into somebody else's life. Let's pick up a few points. Now, <clears throat> before I, I go on, when you read all of the stories of how Jesus interacted with individuals to bring them to the kingdom, to share with them the love of God, he never did it the same way twice. It depended on the person, where they were coming from, how far they'd got on this journey towards faith in God. And Nicodemus... Jesus has the, you know, the, the direct approach and challenges him three times about the need for him to be born again. 
Nicodemus should have understood this. Jesus uses the language from the Old Testament, the, New, the, the book of Ezekiel, where God says, I'll take away the heart of stone, give you a new heart, and put a new spirit. I will sprinkle you and wash you with clean water. This was the new birth experience promised in the first instance to the Jewish people and then extended to us Gentiles when Jesus died on the cross. Let's pick up some points here that will help you evangelize, share your faith, and witness to people wherever they are, whatever, however far they have to travel. And the first thing to notice is that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. In other words, it was a private, almost secret meeting. This man didn't want others to know about it. Why? Well, he was of the sect of the Pharisees who represented the privileged religious establishment. They didn't want others to know that they were inquiring. After all, they're the ones who had the answers. There was tremendous religious pressure on them. They were the orthodox people of the day. Why would they inquire of a humble yet powerful rabbi that was drawing a crowd of people who were not known to be religious. They were a proud people. They had the answers. There were very many vested interests in holding on to their position. This man was a ruler amongst the Pharisees. He was a leader, and that carried financial, social, all kinds of other issues of status, he wouldn't want to lose his position. Now, that's interesting because more and more, as the orthodoxy of today, which isn't theological so much, not religious so much, but it is social, giving us pressure, putting us under pressure to conform with the ideologies of the day which are often liberal in the point of being non-Christian, even anti-Christian, and many people dare not raise their head above the parapet. They dare not expose themselves that they might actually be interested in Christianity. So they will come to you in secret. And you need to make yourself available. I know this from my own experience many years ago when, like Matt, I was out on tour uh, in uh, the Royal Ballet Company and I had recently become a Christian and I decided I am going to nail my colours to the mast. So I told everybody that I was born again. I told them that I was a citizen of heaven. I told them everything else that was guaranteed, yes, to nail the colours to the mast, but also to turn them off. Nevertheless, as the weeks went on, one by one, they came to me in secret and said, oh, by the way, would you pray for me? And they would list some requests that they had for their family, and they kind of look around and lower their voice just in case anybody was watching. And uh, the, the point about this is that you need to be available. You need to give people a safe environment to speak to you and not attack them don't judge them, be ready to listen. A good rule, a good rule of thumb is 
90% listening and barely 10% talking. Give them a good example. Don't push them, but be ready. Just be in a place where people can join you. At the table, at lunch, in the coffee room. Just in those moments, they will come to you. And when they come to you, be ready. So, the next thing we see is that Nicodemus begins by saying, we know that you are a teacher from God. We know. I find that most of the people that are willing to talk about this, they already know something. And that's, that's a process. And, and it has to be something favorable about Christianity. Maybe it's your life. Maybe they will say to you, I know that you're different. I know there's something about you. You don't have to try to impress them. Just be who you are in Christ. And some of the changes, particularly if they knew you before, uh, and now they know you now, they will see something that will be attractive. Or maybe they've come across something that has impressed them. Something that's been said. Some story that they've heard. Somebody else that they've met. And usually over a period of time, as they've been observing, thinking, finding out, there is a curiosity. There must be more to this. Tell me more. They know something already, and they want to know more. And when Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher from God, he was representing a particular standpoint, a viewpoint. Everybody has a set of beliefs, and it represents, in one way or another, an official school of thought. Get to know what they really believe. Let me explain what I mean. Maybe they have a religious background, and they are influenced by that religious background. They may be active or not active in that religion, but they have this background. For example, if, you, if they have a Hindu background, you will know that it's relatively easy for them to accept Christ and to bring him as a kind of addition to all the other gods they believe in. It's quite easy. But that doesn't necessarily they know, mean that they know that he's the true eternal son of God. So you have to bear that in mind. Or if it's a Buddhist, they, they may know or think that Jesus is some kind of enlightened person, but not in a way that's different from the way you and I can become enlightened. But they'll have some background knowledge. Or if it's somebody with a Muslim background, chances are they will respect Jesus as some kind of a prophet, but not the Son of God. So you will know that they have a background, where they're coming from, especially if there's a religious background. But there are people who don't have a religious background, but still they have a philosophy, they have a belief, a set of beliefs that people call a worldview. In other words, how they see the world, how they make sense of the world. Often, it's a secular worldview where they believe that all that there really is and exists is the physical world. There's no supernatural dimension, not really. 
There may be some kind of quasi-spiritual energies, but there is no personal God, no spiritual entity that really exists above the natural realm. We call them naturalists. And at the other end of the scale, there are the supernaturalists. These are people who say, yes, I believe in the physical world in a way, but there is a spiritual dimension, and I'm finding more and more people fit into that category today. Often, they're looking in their thirst for spirit in the wrong places. But you kind of get to know where they are, and Jesus knew exactly where Nicodemus was coming from. And so he targeted his answers, directed his answers to exactly where Nicodemus was. We can assume also that every person that you speak to really does, in their heart of hearts, know three things. Now, they may not admit it. The Bible says that the unbelieving world suppresses the truth, but the truth is there. It may be suppressed inside them, but it, it's still there. They know that God exists. Because the evidence of God's existence is clearly seen by the glorious things of our creation. And the Bible says in Romans 1 that they know even God has revealed even his eternal power and divinity in the creation. Now there are very clever arguments coming from atheists and other uh, cosmologists and those who give a reason how the universe can come to existence out of nothing, but you discover that they, they really don't believe that. They, they're, they're trying to cover up. But most people in their heart of hearts, they know if they would just allow themselves time to reflect and be honest, that they know that God exists. They know that deep down. Also, they understand about morality, the law, the moral law of God is written on their hearts. They know that there is such a thing as right and wrong. They understand that. And that is one of the greatest evidences that God exists because there's no other explanation for the categories of good and evil unless there was a God. That's, there are examples of that in our, in our uh, apologetic material. But they know that. And also the third thing they know is they are accountable. They know that. Why do you think they're so defensive? Why do you think that they very quickly want to shut you up or at least stand back from what you say, even when you haven't said anything? I find sometimes that, that people kind of very defensive. Why do I have to believe in Jesus? I, I, I never said, you have to believe in Jesus. I said, I believed in Jesus. Now, what you must understand is the moment you come out as a Christian and make that declaration, the Holy Spirit is released in their life. Did you know that? In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict. He will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. And so the moment you identify with anybody publicly that you are a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts them and tells them that they need to believe in Jesus. And you haven't said a word yet. So a conversation can go like this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus. What? Why should I have to believe in Jesus? Well, I say, well, I, I didn't say you have to believe in Jesus. But you think I have to believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Well, there you are. You see, I told you. 
but it's the Holy Spirit that convicts them. Remember this, the Holy Spirit is saying far more than what you're saying. Guard your lips, guard your words, be wise in the expression of the gospel because the Holy Spirit is with you. Now they may know something about Christ. Maybe they can say like Nicodemus, I know that Jesus is from God and they might have their reasons for that. Nicodemus' reason were the signs and the wonders and miracles. But there may be other things. You see, faith is not believing where there is no evidence. Faith is believing God, but our faith is reasonable. That's why I point you. Go, go online and have a look at our online learning platform, and there are accesses there to material by Frank Turek and others that show that there are sound, logical, historically supportable reasons for believing that the New Testament is reliable. And there are good, strong reasons for believing that what Jesus said is true. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. The miracles he did when he was alive and the resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is everything whom he claimed to be because there is evidence to the open mind that these things are historically true. So, yes, they know something about God. They may know something about Christ. But in your conversation, you want to lead them step by step as they are willing. Don't push them. And let them come to begin to understand who Jesus is. And then comes the punchline. The third time Jesus said it, he put it so strongly. You must be born again. And that is what makes all the difference. Being a Christian is all about receiving the life of God within you. It's a spiritual rebirth. God takes away the old and puts the new life, the life of God, the life of Christ in you. And that's what a Christian really is. When Jesus said, you must be born again, he said, how come you don't know this? You are a teacher. And he went back in his language, being born of water and spirit, as I explained earlier, is drawing on the Old Testament teaching of God's promise to the Jewish nation. And this man, a teacher of the Jews, didn't understand it. He didn't have spiritual understanding. But Jesus said, you must be born again. And this to me is the biggest incentive to evangelism, to sharing Christ with people. Because without that life, what's left? Death. And there is no other way. Because only Jesus came of his life. As it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here is the, the thing that tears down all of the worldly preconceptions that they have 
about us. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's God's gracious offer based on his reckless love. And he's coming after you. There is no wall, as the song said, that he won't kick down. There's no mountain that he won't climb. There's no lie that he won't tear down to come after you. That's the overwhelming, amazing love of God. And that love is all about reaching out. If we say we have the love of God and keep it to ourselves, then at the very least we haven't understood what we have. It's time to understand what we have and, that, and it's in the same spirit of Christ. It's in the spirit of love that is patient and kind, not judgmental. The love that is prepared to wait and spend time with people. When we go out on the streets and evangelize, one out of every two serious conversations we have on the street ends with somebody giving their life to Christ. That doesn't mean that it excludes all of the people that just walk past and ignore, but the people who come and engage. And that means that when you present the gospel in that kind of context, the ripe fruit is attracted to your message. But it doesn't mean to say that all the rest are lost. It just means they're not in that place yet to hear and to receive. And you have the privilege of being with them and sharing with them over a process. And uh, we're talking about, in our 2020 vision, every one of us reaching out for one person and seeing them saved by Christmas. All right. This is, this is now 18 months we've been doing this, so it's not like a three-month deadline suddenly. But if you've left all your revision to the end, then God's going to do something special with you. But I want to balance that by sharing a story. It was eight years before a friend of mine accepted Christ. Eight years. He is a, an osteopath and um, I had frequent treatment and we became friends. Eight years it took. Now listen, listen carefully. That's not just eight years of anybody. That's eight years of me. I mean, you know, I'm supposed to be the man of power for the hour. You'd think that my very hello would be enough to get people saved. <laughs> but the truth is, we meet people where they're at. We love them, respect them for where they are, and we encourage every movement towards God that the Holy Spirit is prompting. And sometimes that's slow and painful. But we love people. And we want to be their friends, whether they ultimately accept Christ or not. And so eight years in that journey. And, but you'll do it by Christmas, no problem. So there is a process here. So Jesus says you must be born again. There's no other hope. But then also he explains that this is a deep work of the Holy Spirit. And the secret here is about cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Prayer, giving God a chance to work, sowing seeds. 
being born again, happens through the seed. We are born again, the Bible says, through the seed of God's word. And you sow the seed. And God works. And it's a process. It takes time. But there comes a moment when you have to do the Jesus thing and call for a decision. You must be born again. Now, when I say the word must, maybe some of you felt something. Maybe you didn't. But when God's Spirit is on that, wow, it's powerful. Many years ago, I was preaching in a gymnasium, massive gymnasium, 5,000 people, I, I can't remember, in Brazil. And it was the day that Ayrton Senna, the Brazilian Formula One racing driver, was killed. The whole of Brazil descended into depression. People were throwing themselves out of buildings. And so they, the, the leaders got together and said, you're preaching tonight and you just don't know who's in this audience. Some of the most influential people because Ayrton Senna's sister was a Bible-believing Christian. They were, I didn't know who they were, but they were prominent people. Anyway, every, people are people, they all need Christ. And I preached on that. And by the way, outstanding miracles took place outstanding. There was a woman who had a growth in her womb so large that she looked pregnant. The growth disappeared. When she came onto the platform, I, I said, who knows this woman? And her doctor, who had seen her the previous week, came on the platform. There was no, obviously no scans done, but with a simple pal palpation test, he said, I cannot feel any trace of the tumor and I know what it was like last week. Verifiable miracles. But that was not the most powerful thing. I spoke on the verse that says, there's no name given among, from heaven whereby we must be saved. And when I said, no name by which we must be saved. When I said that word must, the Holy Spirit came down and the must be saved shook through that place and reverberated. I, I don't want to exaggerate. In my mind, it was an enormous number. I don't know how many came to Christ that day. But there were many, many people, including some of the key influential people that the leaders had told me about. The word must be saved is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And let me say to you today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you must be saved. There's no other way. So when the Holy Spirit comes in, your words, your words, they may be softly spoken. You don't have to be the archetypal evangelist who doesn't even need a microphone, who will shout and their voice will be heard across the city. It's not about shouting with a microphone. Sometimes in large meetings that's important and sometimes here when I get excited it's, I, I shout. But it's the strength of your words as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, not necessarily shouting. If shouting would get people saved, the world would know him already. <laughs> but here's the thing. When you call for a decision and a response, you need to do it at the right moment. Let's have a look what's on the screen. I don't expect you to 
to pick it all up because there's a lot of information there, but it's just, just to get an idea. This is what is called the Engel scale. A man who did sociological studies and traced the process from beginning to end of a person coming to Christ. And you see it begins way down there on the minor scale uh, of awareness of a supreme being and, but no knowledge of the gospel. In fact, I think there is even a step before that where somebody has no awareness of the supernatural realm. And to say to that person, you must be born again, unless it's the spirit directing you to that, ain't gonna happen. So you need to help nurture them and begin to introduce and help them come to the place where they recognize there is a supernatural realm and they begin to understand that God exists and begin to understand that he sent Christ and then begin to understand what the gospel is and the implications of the gospel right the way through to a decision to act and then here is the new birth and I thank God for this scale because it doesn't end when people say yes to Jesus. It goes on into what we call consolidation. Post this is slightly technical language. The whole point is I'm trying to show it's a process. Post-decision evaluation, incorporation to the body of Christ, conceptual and behavioral growth. Typical sociologist, isn't this? But communion with God and, and stewardship. So that shows the process. It doesn't end the day they say yes to Christ. Now, you can take that down, but it, it's just to show you that there is a process. And the scale might begin at zero with not even understanding that God exists. And uh, the point of conversion may come over here where they are willing to say a big yes to Christ. And it's not advantageous to try to force them or put pressure on them to say yes before they're ready. There's always something you can do. And that's why very often when we make an appeal here in the services and in our personal ministry for people to come to Christ, we have to discern that they're ready. And if they're ready, you can ask them to say a big yes. Yes, I'm all in. I'm going for it. And they can decide that day. But actually, that decision might have taken months, weeks, or even years to come to. And if you try to push them into a yes-no decision before they're ready, they'll either say yes under pressure or say no and feel that that's it. I've made my decision. My decision is no. You want them to have an open mind. So if they're not really ready, you, you might want to start with saying, okay, um, how do you feel about this? What do you think? Well, I'm not so sure. You know, I don't, well, let, let's agree. Let's agree that you will have an open mind. You won't close your mind. Have an open mind. You think it's ridiculous. You've got all kinds of questions, all kinds of reasons why this doesn't make sense to you. But keep an open mind and we'll explore further. Or they might be ready to say, you know, a little yes. Not a big yes. A little yes. Or you're healthy, maybe. And, and what that means is that, you know what? I'm going to agree to continue with you because this may be right. And I am interested in it. And if it's true, I want it. You know, I read in the eyes and in the little slips of the tongue and little casual comments that people say when, they, when their defenses are down and they don't feel that you're pressurizing them. Do you know what I, I believe? I believe that there are many people out there 
thousands of them, maybe even millions of them, don't believe it's true, but wish it was true, and they are trying to find a reason to see if it is true. Because they recognize that there is no better news in all the planet than Jesus loves you and died for you. That he could carry you freely to heaven and give you the gift of eternal life, which is not just going to heaven when you die, but it's a quality of life, even though with all the trials and tests and disappointments that will be with us always until the new creation happens. But they long for it. One Jewish man said to me, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because Judaism teaches that when Messiah comes, universal brotherhood would spread through the planet. Well, that's exactly who we are. Look now. There's a, the beginnings of a universal brotherhood. People from every race, nationality, culture, background. We all love the same Jesus. But that will not explode across the planet in its fullness until this planet is directly under the rule of Jesus Christ when he comes to consummate his kingdom that's already at work in our hearts. Yeah, give Jesus a praise. Um, let me also say this. I'm, I'm giving myself a lot to this kind of thinking. Working very hard in Brazil, interviewing hundreds of people, writing a book in Portuguese. Of course, I don't speak it, but I've got a gifted daughter who does. Based on research of what people think, what they really think. And I've discovered that almost everything that they believe in, want to be true, somehow relates to what the gospel offers. If it's peace, the gospel. If it's fulfillment, the gospel. Not worldly humanistic fulfillment, but the fulfillment of our purpose. If it's relationship, the gospel's got it. So remember this. We have what they want. Not just what they need, but what they want. They're looking for. Yes, there's a lot of barriers to overcome. That's why we discern where people are. We encourage the work of the Spirit in them at that point in their life. We don't force it or push it because it's all a work of the Holy Spirit. And so I encourage you it's time for action. Let me go back. I'm talking about taking the steps to win a soul to Christ. However, the principle of taking action is relevant to so many people here. Not just in the soul winning aspect, but in the next step in your life. And I feel a strong a desire to tell you that it's time for action. If it's a process and an intention that is godly, confirmed, 
and you believe God's in it, there may be a barrier, a blockage. Remove it today. Take that action. Do that thing. Take that step. And if you, I'm not encouraging you to, take, to do everything that's in your mind, because I don't know what's in your mind. And I'm, I'm afraid what might be in some people's minds. I don't know. But I'm talking about that godly action. It's not enough just to say yes mentally or have an intention. Take that step. Take that action which will thrust you further into the purpose of God. And that action begins where you are. God has placed you where he wants you to be. You might hate it. You might say, what in this pathetic studio apartment? What in this dead-end job? What with that horrendous boss? Yes, for now. <laughs> Maybe he'll lead you on. But for now, where you are, you are God's seed planted and you are to flourish where you are and bear fruit where you are and God will move you on when he is ready. But now, don't look to tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for who you are in our lives. We ask you that you would give us that final release of motivation and decision that will take us out of intention into action and that our actions will be godly and fruitful and even if they're not, we will know the satisfaction of having said yes to you and done what you've asked us to do. In Jesus' name.